Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Gordon Smith, president of Ambrose University and author of Courage and Calling, Embracing Your God-Given Potential. Together, we'll discuss how to determine God's will for your career. Gordon, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Sam. So good to be with you as well. Uh, Christian students are inevitably wrestling with a big question as they look toward graduation, namely how to discern their calling, what God is calling them to do with their lives. And so I wanted to discuss this with you. You wrote a great book a number of years ago now entitled Courage and Calling, Embracing Your God-Given Potential. And uh, it is so helpful, I think, in helping students wrestle with these questions. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk these things through. So to start with, how did you even get interested in this topic in the first place? <laughs> well, I the, the the first draft of the manuscript happened when I was in vocational transition. Uh-huh. Um, I was wrestling with the kinds of issues. So as much as anything, I was the first audience of this, um, of this manuscript, just in a sense, this is me trying to make sense of myself at this stage of life trying to discern God's call in the next chapter. And for what it's worth, I think that however much I am very keen that we would be present to emerging adults as they try to make sense of the call of God in their lives, uh, the fact of the matter is that won't be the only time that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of us wrestle with these kinds of issues in midlife and in mid-career. And I'm with a man yesterday who's moving into his 70s. And um, I'm thinking... We need another edition of Courage and Calling for people moving into their senior years. Mm. So um, this is a live issue all through life. And I would hope that emerging adults in their undergraduate years develop this as one of the basic life skills, the capacity to make this kind of uh, uh, choosing, this kind of decision making, this kind of discernment through the course of their lives. Mm. So what's your main point? What's your thesis about that? Stan, the thesis quite simply is this, that ultimately our lives are lived in response to uh, the one who has made us and redeemed us, and that in in that regard, we are invited to be participants in what God is doing in the world, in what we say and in what we do. And really, what I just said is completely staggering and extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Paul uses breathtaking language in the Corinthian correspondence. We are ambassadors, he says. We are co-workers. The audacity to use that kind of language. We never want to overstate our significance, but also to realize that in response to the creator and redeemer of all things, we are invited to participate in the work of God in the world, the creator and redeemer of all things. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sure is. And actually, I think it's staggering to at least uh, some listeners in a different way. They have heard from their church upbringing or their uh, campus ministry or or other sources that calling is only to ministry, and and you actually talk about this in the book, and you use uh, the the word vocation and calling interchangeably to to make the the point that you know we're called into all areas of service, and um, and I want I want you to say a little more about that. In fact, uh, to take this a step further, there are, are many campus ministries that I've been aware of that that tell students that. Uh, God is calling them all into ministry, maybe joining their staff or going uh, into the pastor or something and 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 not to give 
as I've heard one campus minister put it, give God your second rate hours, give him your best Ooh. hours by going into ministry. Ouch. And that is so different from your thesis. And I'd like you to talk more about why you aren't articulating that view of calling, but a, I'd say a much more robust and biblical view. Sure. Well, <laughs> I I grew up within that world. So I grew mm. up within the world that if you love Jesus, you will be a missionary. Okay. And actually, if you love Jesus a lot, you will go to a very distant place. Yeah. And in my religious tradition, we used to sing a hymn entitled, To the Regions Beyond We Must Go. Somehow, the farther you went, the more impressive the work that you were doing. Okay. Um, and if you weren't going to be a missionary, then you're going to be a pastor. And for my father, that was the Lord's work. And if you weren't going to do the Lord's work, then you were going to make a lot of money to support the people that were doing the Lord's work. Right. But it actually flies in the face, not only of the biblical witness, where the high point of the book of Proverbs, I'm working on this right now for a sermon I'm going to give here on campus on the calling to business. The high point in the book of Proverbs is the last chapter. And this woman is a businesswoman, for goodness sake. <laughs> right, right. She buys and sells fields. She buys and sells fabric. She's a businesswoman. And she becomes the embodiment of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And then earlier in the Old Testament, the artists are celebrated. Bezalel mm -hmm. and so on. These are These are celebrated for their work in the arts. They weren't doing religious work per se, but they were artists. So in our evangelical reformed heritage, uh, we push back against the Catholic notion that would ask, do you have a vocation? And there is still, that language is still used in Catholic circles. Do you have a vocation, meaning to the priesthood or mm -hmm. to a religious order? But the reformers insisted that God was calling people into every sphere and sector of society, and that as such, they were participants in the kingdom working of God. It was revolutionary. So it makes no sense for those of us born, bred, and raised within theological traditions that are heirs to the Reformation to not affirm as such. So uh, one side of me is a little, you know, really? This is news to everybody? On the other side, I'm sorry, but we still default to this idea that some that religious work is more inherently sacred work, the Lord's work, than the work of those that are called into business, called into the arts, called into the domestic spheres, the, the making of a home and the raising of children. Sure. Called into environmental care or down the hall. I mean, I can point down the hall <laughs> to the biology department and those students that plan to go on in medicine or to the left. I go down that hall and those students that are humanities and philosophy majors that plan to go into law. Uh, for all of them, this is good work. Part of what I get pushback from is that we need people to do religious work. Sure. I'm not questioning that. Sure. But I'm just saying we can trust God with this, with the ecology of, of the vocations. We can trust the spirit. <laughs> I know yeah. that sounds so yeah. silly for me to say it, but it I'm afraid we sometimes need to say it. Right. Uh, God's got this under control. So when you sit in the stands and you're invited into the drama of God's redemptive work, you, you just ask, so Lord, where are you calling me to speak and to act to your glory? And then to embrace it with alacrity, to say, okay, I can do this, and I'm going to do this and do it well. To use the, the ancient phrase, ad maiorem de gloria, to the greater glory of God. But it requires recognizing that the work, in, and I, I think business is one of, the, one of the key tests, that you probably only believe this if you believe it's a call, that the calling to business is actually potentially sacred work. Mm, yeah, I like that term, sacred work. So uh, it is interesting that one of the main correctives of the Reformation was this broader theology of vocation 
beyond just the quote unquote ministry. How do you think we came to fall back into that division of sacred work, quote unquote, and other secular mundane stuff? Or did it never really catch on? It was just a blip in the Reformation era, and it really never took hold in the broader circles. I wonder. It's so it's so deep in the DNA of so many religious traditions that that that's a that's a very fair question. It did take in certain circles. That is, I'm really interested in how the Reformation took in Holland, for example, within hmm. Dutch reform circles and CRC Christian reform circles. Right. That it seems to me we have some religious traditions, and I'll I'll mention the Christian Reformed and the Dutch Reformed, mm-hmm. that seem to have a deeper, more ingrained appreciation of both the intellectual life evident in their uh, in their schools and their universities, but also in, uh, interested in the ways in which God is calling people. Having said that, I spoke at Calvin College about a decade ago, and I decided in my talk to to celebrate the work of our hands manual work, the work of the trades, the work of the crafts, I could feel the pushback in the room. Oh, no, no, no. My parents want me to be lawyers, doctors, engineers, but no, I'm not going to go be a plumber, an electrician, and a carpenter. I'm not going to be a seamstress. I'm not going to work with my hands. And so I have a book that came out six months ago. I have a whole chapter on working with our hands. And I think in part that arose out of that experience, realizing Mm. that in some circles, there still is a dismissiveness of manual work, which we think of as menial work. Mm-hmm. They come from the same root word, but in actual fact, in the Christian tradition, working with our hands is noble work. It is good work, and it is to be celebrated. Absolutely. But yes, I do think uh, you may have a point that it never it never took. Perhaps partly our Greco-Roman or Greco-Hellenistic influence, it's deep in our culture, this idea that some kind of work has more significance, more weight more prestige. Uh, so there was an inclination that way. But this is the air I breathed as a child. Okay. My parents were missionaries. I grew up on the mission field. That, But that was just, it was just part of the air that, um, that this is what you did. And if you were doing the Lord's work, I wish I could say it my way that my father did. It's kind of a three-syllable word, the Lord's work. You were doing <laughs> religious work. You were building, you were planting churches. You were developing churches. And Christians were Christians were judged by how my, my parents' language was how active are they in the local church, rather than are they doing business in the arts and teaching public school to the glory of God and faithful to God in their service in the world was it never came up as a criteria. And frankly, however much I think we've turned a corner, I have to spend a lot more energy justifying the business program down the hall from my office, then I have to justify the theological Mm -hmm. seminary. Mm -hmm. I can raise money for the seminary much more easily than I can raise funds for the school of business. Right. (laughs) Did I just say that? Yes, I did. (laughs) You did. (laughs) And I'm not surprised, unfortunately. It's still there. It's still there. So take us a little more through your journey, how you got from that upbringing theologically to this more robust vision and theology of vocation? What, what, what were some of the key steps that moved the needle for you? Uh, interesting question, if you ask it autobiographically. I think I see this more in retrospect, hmm. and probably even within the last year, realized how much in my theology and my writing, I made an assumption that I think emerged in my early 20s, and that was that the primary reference point for the work of Christ 
is not the incarnation and not the cross and not the resurrection, but that Christ now sits on the throne of the universe, receives our worship, and as the king is bringing about his kingdom purposes in the world, is reconciling all things to himself. And I think that that underlying vision or realization has shaped literally almost everything I've published since. Mm. And that goes back to my line earlier that, that the one who sits on the throne of the universe is the creator of all things, is reconciling all things to himself. And if I may just add that little amazing line and is inviting us to participate in that work. So when I published a book on prayer a number of years ago, uh, my whole book on prayer was praying the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And I realized afterwards, oh, that really is the lens through which I see even our prayer, that we're praying that the kingdom of God would come, that the king who sits on the throne of the universe is the primary lens through which I live my life, but also I think through which I write. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I was so conscious of that when I published Courage and Calling now 25 years ago. But in retrospect, I realized that that lens probably was there regardless of how conscious I was of it. Mm. So was it a Martin Luther type experience where you were just in the scriptures and realized, wait a minute, this is different than what I've always been taught and started to develop a a, a different theology of vocation or were there certain people or books or events that helped you start down this path? Wow. Good question. I don't, I don't doubt the impl the significance of Francis Schaeffer and his cohort. So for my generation, mm -hmm. you can see the color of my hair, <laughs> uh, for my generation uh, in the 1970s, many of us, I was one of them in the 1970s, we wandered through the little village of Waymo, Switzerland. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt that Udo Middleman, Francis Schaeffer's son-in-law, uh, Hans Ruckmacher, and other voices there had a much broader vision of the kingdom of God than what I had grown up with. So that at one and the same time, as there was this affirmation of the Christian mind, there was also an affirmation of the ways in which God's redemptive purposes are touching on every dimension of life and work. Mm. That redemption is not just a matter of saving an individual and plucking them out for the kingdom that is yet to come, but that we are now participating in this extraordinary work of God's redemptive purposes. I don't doubt the significance of, of not just Schaefer, with whom, by the way, it's amazing now, when, when I get to the kingdom of, uh, uh, that is yet to come, I will have to say to Mr. Schaefer, you know, I differ with you on just about everything, but I still <laughs> want to thank I still want to thank you for what you gave me back in my, uh, when I was 20 years old. So I, I don't agree with so much of what he has said later on, but at that time, it was Schaefer and company, Hans Rickmacher, Udo Middleman, mm. uh, Os Guinness, these voices that were coming out of that, that cohort sure. that was just revolutionary for, my, for me and for many of my peers. Mm -hmm. Who have so many writings that are timeless, so those are still available for listeners to pick up and... Yeah. And uh, think about it as well. So so you've actually touched on a theme that has come up in many of my conversations with others as well. And that is the importance of, of community and how we learn and grow and develop spiritually and intellectually in community through the influence of others. So another great example that you have the opportunity to be in community with others who are thinking about these things and learn from them and, uh, and, and ask questions and with them and develop greater convictions. So uh, that's, uh, that's really helpful. Well, let me just say on that score, I, one of the things that I belabor 
is that I cannot discern for you the call of God on your life. Um, I can't enter into your heart. I can't kind of read the movements of the Spirit in your heart. I can't do that for you. Everybody needs to take adult responsibility for their own lives and come to the realization, you know, only Mary could hear what Angel Gabriel was saying to her. Mm. Only Moses could be there at the burning bush. Only, only Paul could uh, have that encounter. However, however, while nobody can do it for you, you can't do it alone. If you are not connected with men and women who are a generation older than yourself, who will bless you and encourage you, if you don't have peers who will not flatter you, but will will love you and speak truth to you and challenge you, I, th I just think, where would I be were it not for the women and men who were friends and colleagues and counterparts along the way? Mm -hmm. So um, I think part of what concerns me here, not so much with women, I find women students, undergraduates, are on the whole quite well connected. Hmm. But young men in their early 20s, remarkably lonely lives, solitary lives. They're not connected with men a generation older, and partly because they don't want to be with older men who just tell them what to do. Partly because older men don't know how to be present to younger men, I'll grant that. But they're not connected, and they don't seem to be developing strong friendships. And so that seems to me a gap that is comes alongside the broader question that you're raising about vocation and work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. You're right to raise the question of, uh, of community. Such a helpful distinction. You, you make a number of distinctions throughout the book, actually, that I find very helpful. Uh, I want to have you say a little more about another one, and that's the distinction between career and vocation. A lot of times that's uh, used synonymously. What's your vocation? What's your career? Same thing. It's not. And I, I really think that's very helpful yeah. to yeah. our listeners. I know it's been helpful to me when I read it first. It really struck me. I had to stop and read it several times and think about that. And it's helped shape my thinking. So would you elucidate a bit that distinction you make? Well, I mean, I, I celebrate those times in which you may say my vocation is to write and you write well enough and extensively enough that you can publish well enough that you can pay the mortgage. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, and there's no doubt uh, that I feel called to this job that I have and the work that I've done over the last 30 plus years in academic administration. I, I do that work with a sense of vocation or calling. So it, it is possible that a career could be a means by which your vocation is fulfilled. But for I wonder if for the majority of people in the world, definitely for those on the more economically marginalized sectors of our globe, it is a luxury to assume that your vocation and your career are one and the same. Mm -hmm. You may just say, I've got a job at the local auto factory, and what it does is it pays the bills and puts a roof over the head of my family and puts food on the table and pays for my children's education. That's the work that I need to do to pay the bills. But my vocation may be otherwise. And I think making that distinction then frees some people who do not have the privilege of a one-to-one -one between vocation and career. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, I remember when our, grand, our first grandchild was born. And my wife's language was, well, this changes everything. <laughs> uh, that there's a sense in which, whoa, now this is inherent in what it means for us to be who we are called to be. As we are an older generation, suddenly now we're the senior generation to a, to a, to grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And my primary work 
is that of an academic administrator, but something nags at me when I'm not writing. Mm. There's for me a realization that alongside my day job, I need to be attentive to what is clearly something that, for me at least, that I believe the Lord has called me to. And I have friends who just seem to not hesitate to say, so Gordon, what are you writing these days? And if I say, well, I'm not working on anything right now, they say, you know what? That's not a good, that wasn't the right answer. (laughs) Um, You're neglecting something. Uh, So I think it is important to make the distinction, probably because of the luxury that some of us have to be in a career that is our vocation, but also to realize that even for those of us for whom that is the case, probably the calling of God on our lives is broader and not as narrowly defined as a career. Not to mention, I will probably conclude my tenure as a university president within the next few years. I'm not called into this role indefinitely. And there's people down the hall that are, would be glad to hear what I just said. <laughs> yeah, it's time for the president to move on. But no, at one point, I will move into another chapter or phase of life, and I will conclude this career. But that doesn't mean that vocation or calling is done. So what will I be called to then in that season or chapter of life? Mm-hmm. Thanks for summarizing that. That's the type of thing that, again... I think is a misnomer that yeah. um, people have. And it's, again, another encouragement for folks to read the book because you really do a good job of saying more about this there. Let's get into the practical uh, next question. Uh, we've talked about the wrong theology that permeates this question of my vocation and and that, in fact, there is a calling to all areas. But then the question arises, well, then how do I, as a student, discover what my calling is? And you identify four questions to answer this on page 59. Uh, I'm going to just bullet point them and ask you then to say a little bit about how students can process those questions. You suggest that there are four questions that need to be raised in discerning one's vocation. One, uh, my talent or capacity Two, my desire and deep joy. Three, where I feel the brokenness of the world. And four, my personality or temperament. Uh, And just as a footnote, uh, as I've walked down this path, those have been really helpful categories to think in, uh, questions to ask. But would you say a little more about those four, how they relate, uh, the ways you prioritize some over the other? Well, if there's one one word that kind of binds them all together, it's the word identity. Mm. And it comes it ultimately leads to the question of self-knowledge. So I, I don't want to be melodramatic, but I'm inclined to say the greatest obstacle to your capacity to discern your vocation is the failure to see oneself in truth. Okay. Um, that essential to discerning vocation well is to, is to take a sober look at yourself, Romans 12, 1, to see yourself in truth. And to not wish you were anybody other than who you are or anybody other than who God made when God made you. Mm. This is so crucial. We live by pretense. And I often think so much social media is about creating a persona, Mm -hmm. a buffered self, as Charles Taylor puts it, rather than an authentic self to see oneself in truth and stop wishing that you were anybody other than who you are. Mm -hmm. So how has God given you talent and capacity? What is the innermost desire? Or as Peter Block would put it, and in subsequent publications, I've nuanced it a little bit differently. What is it that matters to you? Mm. I mean, my wife and I are so different on this point. 
for me, good governance is like a sign that the kingdom of God has come. <laughs> and surely everybody would agree with me that good governance is the goal of the kingdom. <laughs> no wonder I got into this line of work. It matters. But for my wife, the greatest of all sins is banality. And no surprise, she's an artist. Mm. Her desire for, for beauty to shape, form, and inform, infuse all of life, I consider it a noble desire. Uh, she looks at me like, what do you mean a noble desire? <laughs> Nothing matters more. And she's got good biblical and theological and historical basis for saying nothing matters more than beauty because that's how the Holy Spirit is present to the life and work of the world. And I say, well, dream on. But if there isn't a well-run gallery, if there isn't a well-run, <laughs> yep. you, you artists are not going to yep. get your materials. You need an art supply store that's well-run. There you go. I can do that for you. That's right. But anyways, I think the whole question of desire, what matters to you, is important. Uh, what gets you up in the morning? Why do you come to work? Why, what, why do you invest your time and energy? Because it matters. Uh, so what is it that matters to you? Now, one way to get at that and it's a tentative way, is through the question of anger. What makes you angry? Mm. The crucial question, though, there is, you can't live a life motivated by and fueled by anger. Mm. It will ultimately be destructive. It will ultimately tinge you and others. However noble your cause, if anger is driving you, it is destructive. And therefore, anger can be an insight into what matters to you, but it can't ultimately be the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. And then I have found the Myers-Briggs Temperament Inventory remarkably helpful, both to understand both the limits of who I, what I bring to this role, as well as some of the strengths, the, the inclinations or the proclivities that I bring to this role. Whether it's around the question of God's creative work or God's redemptive work, I might nuance that third one a little bit differently now, because if we see our work as a participation in the creative work of God, and then in the redemptive work of God. When it comes to the redemptive work of God, we're going to see something that's wrong, something that's broken, something that's flawed, and that we might be able to be a participant in the healing purposes of God. But um, at the beginning of the book, I didn't put it there, but the publishers put in the Frederick Beekner line that your vocation is found at the intersection of your deep joy and the world's deep wrong. Um, I'm not convinced it's quite so simple. But there's some truth there. Where do you sense the deep wrong of the world? That God is inviting you to be uh, an agent of God's redemptive, of God's healing grace. Mm -hmm. But that the wrong in the world is so complex and so diverse that it's, it's hugely problematic if I say to you, this is what's wrong with our world, and that therefore you should respond to the world the same way that I do. Right. And we project that upon others. And that's where it's important to at least recognize Different people may see the world and the needs of the world differently through the lenses of, of the kingdom of God in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is, again, a place the balance comes in because in all these questions to discern, the answer is never done in isolation. It's done in community, right? Where others yeah. can give you feedback of where you you think you have some gifts and abilities to address needs, but they can confirm that or perhaps deny that. You might think you're really no, good I mean, at helping in some way, and you're actually not. Uh, I, I was in a grad program in history to work on an MA in history, and I can vividly remember meeting with the chair of the department, John Gilchrist, as I sit in his office, and he says so gently, 
But Gordon, you're not a historian. Uh, Ouch. Sure. Ouch. And I have two historian friends very close to me. They all know who John Gilchrist is. He's quite famous, apparently. And they said, oh, my, Gordon, he saved you. You're not a historian. I say, I know. But don't you don't have to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> but we need sometimes. And my son was an engineering major. He's a pastor now. He was an engineering major at University of British Columbia. And a friend of ours came by, went for a long walk with him. And at the end, he says, Micah, you're not an engineer. You're not one of us. We need those moments in our lives just as much as we need when my son went through a crisis experience as a pastor. Two older pastors, my peers, said to him, oh, no, Micah, you're a pastor. Hmm. Even though you feel like a failure right now, you're one of us. Okay. So those can go both ways, both the affirmation of your instincts and your calling, right. but also when maybe, maybe this isn't you. Right. I still think I should have been the conductor of a symphony orchestra. Is that right? <laughs> but nobody else thinks so. <laughs> so that's uh, that's been true in my life, too. People at the right time coming alongside and giving me the input I needed. But uh, But also, to your earlier point, at the end of the day, they can't tell me what I should be doing. Their input is helpful. It's valuable. It's 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 grist for the mill. It should be taken seriously, but uh, but it's only part of the picture. And there's sometimes that I have known that I'm called to do something, and needed to move forward, even though there were there were some naysayers. We will always have them. So there's no no formula here. Yeah, there's no formula. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast, Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland Do Together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to college faith. We're touching uh, on something else that I want to drill into because I think it's a big challenge for students. I can hear a student listening to this and saying, boy, yeah, the, but the stakes are so high. Uh, you know, this is, this is what I do nine to five or maybe more for years on end. What if I make a mistake? What if I don't hear God's call? What if I don't get my vocational choice right? We have a money-back guarantee on the book. If they buy the book, we'll give them their money back. Oh, there you go. If five years later, they got it wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they'll take care of everything. There <laughs> <Okay>. you go. <laughs> um, first of all, I I, I appreciate, oh, when I was a young person, we used to sing a song, somebody, you only have one life to live. Are you going to live? You know, yeah, yeah. and they, oh, just, I'm exhausted by it. Yeah. No, no, Rip, don't create this kind of weight. Don't overstate the significance of the choices you're making now. The number of people I know who, they weren't Jonas. It isn't that they were rejecting the call of God and going the opposite direction to Tarshish. 
but they kind of missed it for any number mm -hmm. of reasons. Mm -hmm. They missed it because their parents were not affirming. They missed it because they were part of a religious subculture that dismissed the work of artists or business person. They missed it because they just didn't get the right encouragement at the right time. Or the man I know that his grandfather was a medical doctor, his father was a medical doctor, and he went into medicine because it was just expected. And at age 39, looked in the mirror and said, this isn't me. I'm not my father. I'm not my grandfather. Hmm. And I'm grateful to that his wife recognized it, that this was not bringing him the deep joy and satisfaction to which he was called. And he had friends, even in the medical profession, that knew that he wasn't one of them and had the courage then to say, despite the fact that we've invested so much in med medical studies, there is to use, I think it's language attributed to T.S. Eliot, with God, there is no wasted time. Hmm. So to make the transition now to say, okay, I've lived with myself long enough to know who I am, but yes, yeah, sometimes we'll miss it along the way. And it's not the end of the world as we know it. I mean, I guess you could go into the drug trafficking trade, or you could go into some, something that is really destructive to you and to others, in which it's going to take a lot of work for God to redeem that. Uh, but I, I want to commend sincerity, a desire to serve God and to do the right thing, but also to realize that some of the most powerful transitions in life are mid-career transitions. Moses wasn't called to lead the people of Israel until he was 80, for goodness sakes. Mm -hmm. uh, even Jesus' own call in his life was in his 30s. Paul, more mid-career, likely. So I wonder if we put too much weight on a typical 21-year-old to say, you need to decide now what you're going to do for the rest of your life, rather than just accept that God leads one step at a time. And so this is the next step. This is the trajectory and on. I'm going to go into medicine, or I'm going to go into law, or I'm going to go into, without overstating what this is going to mean for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, we probably don't have the capacity to make that call. Right. You That's don't right. know what's going to unfold. Right. I would never, I'm a university president. It would never have crossed my mind when I was an undergraduate that I would be a university president. I didn't even know who the president of the university was where I was or what they did. It had no, there was no ambition, no aspiration for me for that. I didn't aspire to be an academic administrator. Um, those are the people that were causing me grief as an undergraduate. <laughs> I didn't want to be one of them. <laughs> so I, I think for so many people, it will unfold. Mm -hmm. And we just take the next step. Mm -hmm. Just take the next step. And God leads one step at a time. I was given such a great analogy of this when I was at a crossroads and trying to make some decisions, or a crossroad was approaching. And I was meeting with a seminary president, and I asked him. He had grown up in a very, very rural and economically depressed area, dropped out of school at sixth grade to, to work. And now here he is, a seminary president. And so I ask him, how did you get from there to here? That's right. And he gave me the best analogy I've heard. He said, well, uh, it was Mississippi where he grew up. He said, it's like the back roads in Mississippi. When you're driving down them at night, it is as pitch black as you can imagine. And all you can see is what your headlights illuminate yep. in front yep. of you. And there might be a hairpin turn coming up. And you have no idea. But by the time you need to turn, you know, because the headlights are that just that much ahead of you. Yep. So you don't have to know the whole road. You just need to know in time to take the turn. And he said, that's been my life. I could have never charted this. 
Yeah. But God gave me enough illumination that when the turn needed to be taken, I could take it. I thought that was super helpful. That's excellent. So I use the, I use the image of the city block that where God is taking you is actually kitty corner. You can't see it where he's ultimately taking you. He's taking you down this street, and then you're going to make a right turn to go to where he wants you. But in the meantime, you're going down this street. And it may seem counterproductive to where you, where God is ultimately calling you, but the Lord can see the big picture. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Or the, the great Portuguese proverb, I think it is, God, God leads straight with crooked lines. So we go where the Lord leads. Or the image from sailing, we tack. I often talk about the bend in the road. You cannot see around the bend in the road. You can only see up to the bend in the road. And so right. that's as much guidance as the Lord's going to give you. Right. I like the image you said, though, from the other person, because I like the idea of that the lights are showing you. The lights are only showing you that far. Right. So you go it that far. Right. That's great. Well, to quote the eminent theologian Gordon T. Smith here, <laughs> on page 84, you said, the best advice is simple. Keep your options open. Your 20s are a time to learn, to grow, to establish friendships, to make an initial explore, exploration into an occupation, but most of all, to get to know yourself. Really well said. That sounds good. <laughs> Remember saying that? That was really, no, really well don't. said. <laughs> it sounds like me. <laughs> but yeah, I belabor, I belabor that in this building. I said self-knowledge, to know God and to know oneself. This is wisdom. And I'm a big fan of Dostoevsky. I think, I think the Brothers Karamazov, the genius of that towering novel, is the continual propensity to lie to yourself. And Father Zosima, the, the spiritual director in there, just keeps saying, speaking to the importance of speaking truth to oneself. And Teresa of Avila, this is wisdom. Wisdom is to know God and to know oneself. So self-identity is so, so fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I'll tie this back into the second podcast uh, I did with Dr. Liam Atchison talking about what is the university. This is part of the value in the university of a broad curriculum, right? Where you take courses outside of this narrow track that you think you're going to to use in a practical way in terms of uh, the skills you need to get hired as an X. But you're required, unfortunately, less and less, but you're required in universities to take classes over in all these other departments that aren't quote unquote, related to your interests, quote unquote, but it helps you be a a more well-rounded person, but also get a chance to explore other areas because you might find that by taking this class in history, contrary to you, your experience, the person really was heading to be an engineer and they should be a historian, right? So uh, that's part of, I think, the value and the impetus uh, for universities to require students explore other areas. And I'm wholeheartedly in favor of that. I worry that even in high school, sometimes kids are getting told, pick your area and start to even high school focus all of your classwork there. Because it's hard to discern where your passion is when all you know is one thing. Yep. You got it. No, it's too soon. Yeah. I'm with you all the way. Well said. I need to listen to this podcast. What is the university? Yeah, it's the second one. And I'll link that in the show notes for others if they want to go back and listen to that one. Please do. Uh, but I like another phrase along these lines you use on page 105. Uh, you talk about this uh, being an inordinate and inappropriate burden that students bear of trying to determine their vocation when they're in these very young stages and even post-graduation in the 20s trying to nail down, here's exactly who I am and what I should do. 
no, there's a sense of this is a time to explore, to see where God really is calling you to make the greatest difference. And it's okay to have some turns along the way. I think you say in page 181, something else about that. Yeah, I've got it here. Uh, You suggest that there's a temptation to think that we must act immediately on what we're called to do. And the point you're making is, well, you've got to get a job and 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 work, but it might not be long term where you're called, and that's okay. You're still in that season of discovery. Well, and I think it. I mean, part of why I like the four year undergraduate. I don't know where the four years came from. I mean, we've it's been it's so common now in higher education. But I watch young people. They you know they show up here in the fall of one year, and three and a half years later, they're moving towards their final you know their final semester and so on. And I I just often say that there's something powerful about the habituated actions, the university experience, let this unfold over time. You do not need to decide in your first year what your major is going to be. I wish that we had more flexibility where students moving into their third year could actually more easily transition to another major without the faculty in the other department saying, describing that as attrition. No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a lot of pressure from parents There's a lot of pressure from, in my case, the jurisdiction that we're part of, the province of Alberta, and there's a lot of pressure even within church circles. Uh, Decide who you are, grow up, get a job, Mm -hmm. contribute to the economy, make a difference. And so, you know, that kind of pressure to get independent financially, to get a job and to contribute to the economy, um, I think it's an an oppressive, Um, and and it takes time. Now, (laughs) you and I both know people actually more men than women that probably need to take responsibility for their lives and grow up. Mm-hmm. And they've been playing video games until their late twenties. And it's time to say, you know, time to take adult responsibility, but that's the exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people need just, just more time and space in community where they're loved and accepted and where they can test the waters. I took a course in geography as an undergraduate. I didn't become a geographer, but I often think back to what a gift that course was. It gave me so much in terms of just the way that I think. Right. Well, and I've read a while ago, don't know if this is exactly right now, but it's probably pretty close, that the average undergraduate changes majors five times. (laughs) And I think a lot of that is because you're required to declare your major so early that you just don't know. And then you take a course over here and you're interested, maybe I'll change to that. But then you take a course over here and you're interested. Well, to your point, wouldn't it be wonderful if students who are listening to this in their early years in college or even high school can find ways to defer yeah. choosing a major until their junior year to have those broader experiences and and reflect on where is God really, since God is really saying this is an area that I've uniquely created and I'm calling you to be up to, to be to be invested in, even in subcategories like medicine, people in the field of medicine are protesting that medical students are being pressed to a specialty prematurely Mm. and that they need to let that unfold later, whether they're going to go into oncology or whatever it's going to be. Don't press that so soon because you want to go in, you ultimately want it to be something that you really care about and are skilled at, but it may not let it unfold in time. Well, I want to pick up on one more theme in this book that is very important and very germane to our modern way of being. Uh, you suggest that one of the things that having an accurate theology of vocation impacts is um, is that it frees you from, as you 
say on page 131, you're freed from the urgency and tyranny of time. And this, this sense of, I don't have to be crazy busy to show my worth. I don't have to work 24, seven, 365 because God's called me. Uh, but it's one of my callings, what I do during my, uh, my, my time at work, but I have other callings. There's balance, there's Sabbath in there. It's all part of a broader understanding of how God calls us to, to be in the world. I, I, I like that theme. It's an important theme. It's not a theme that's heard often, even in uh, many Christian circles. So could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. I guess in part, it's based on a premise that goes back actually to the Jewish philosophical or theological and spiritual tradition, that in my upbringing, the word leisure is a bad word. And that if I were to say to you, I'm going to go about my life and my work at a leisured pace, Mm -hmm. like, really, you've got that kind of time? But there was this sense, again, in my growing up, that Jesus is coming back soon, in fact, probably by this weekend, uh, and we need to, we've got a lot of work that needs to be done before the Lord returns. There isn't this sense of, no, the Lord will return in due time, but in the meantime, we will go about our life and our work at a leisure pace. Now, there will be times in which, yes, the fire bell goes off, and if you work at the fire department, you don't respond to a fire at a leisure pace. You're out, you clear the road, you put on the siren, and you're on your way. And you're going to get there as quickly as you can. And there will be uh, times in our lives in which we need to respond promptly, quickly, urgently to get what needs to be done, done. But it should not be the norm. It should be the exception. The norm should be that we go through our life and our work at a leisure pace with a certain rhythm and routine to our life that allows us to do our work in a way that is thoughtful, considerate, and with margins enough that if I'm walking down the hall, I'm never so busy that I don't make eye contact with the student and realize, ooh, I need to just wander over and say, everything okay? Mm-hmm. How, however we understand the Good Samaritan, I'm just grateful that he wasn't in such a busy hurry to get to Jericho that he couldn't stop along the way. That is, the, there needs to be enough margin in our day for those things that we can't plan. So part of my protest against the typical kind of airport book on working effectively or, you know, <laughs> the seven habits of highly effective people, or for Canadians, the seven habits of marginally effective people. We don't like it to go to our heads. (laughs) We're just, we're more calm about that. Is this idea that you're always, always, always on the job, always delivering. I think some of the deepest work that we do is slow, gradual, incremental over the long arc. We'll get there. When I was a pastor, we were judged in part by how quickly our congregation was growing, Mm -hmm. as though somehow speed is an ecclesial virtue. (laughs) Like what? Since when and why? But it was deeply ingrained in us that uh, the more you're doing and the faster you're doing it, that that's points in the kingdom of God. Right. Rather than the slow, gradual unfolding of God's purposes in our lives and in the lives of others. (laughs) You and I, we all know of works of art or of institutions or of books that have been written that were written over many years. And to come to somehow a gracious acceptance that that's okay. Mm -hmm. That sometimes the things that really last and have a permanent value grew slowly, incrementally over time. When I'm feeling frenetic and rushed, I know I need to go back and re-examine why am I in this frenetic pace? I must be doing more than I'm called to do. And if I am, it means I'm doing the work that I am called to do without a thoughtful, centered disposition 
and that compromises the quality and character of my work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it goes back to the word leisure. I do believe in Sabbath. I do believe in margins to my day. I do believe in not overextending, no, not overcommitting. Eugene Peterson is so good on this. I remember hearing him speak about doing things in a timely way. Uh, and I thought, wow, how apt. Mm. It was timely. You met your deadlines. You did your work on time, but not with the sense of it being rushed. He quotes the language of, of Galatians when, in the fullness of time, the sun came. Mm. Can we do our work in the fullness of time rather than seeing time as an enemy? Uh, that we're in it, we're constantly in a battle against time, constantly wishing we had a 25-hour day and an eight-day week. But no, this is the time that's been given to us, and to live at peace with the time that we are in which we have been placed. Mm -hmm. Which to circle all the way back is grounded in a true, accurate, robust theology of vocation and work yeah. that says, yeah. God's called me to this. I need to be faithful and work hardly as under the Lord, whether it's in business or in medicine or you name it. But I don't need to think it all depends on me. He's the caller. He's the sustainer. And he calls me to do it in a way, as you've just said, that gives me boundaries, gives me margin, gives me seasons of, of rest and doesn't fall into this narrative that the crazy busier I am, the more effective or valuable I am to, to God yep. or others. The more significant my life and my work. Right. It's amazing the number of people who just kind of say, Gordon, I know you're busy, as though that is a compliment. Right. Oh, that's a sign that I'm important. How do you know this? <laughs> you're just assuming it because by virtue of your job, you must be very busy. I'm struck by that assumption that has infiltrated our speaking about vocation, work, and career that I think needs to be challenged. Sure does. Well, we need to draw to a close. This has been fabulous. We've talked about expanding a theology of work and vocation beyond just the quote-unquote ministry careers. Uh, we've talked about how to discern God's calling, the four ways you speak of in the context of community. Uh, we've talked about the fact that it's a journey that it doesn't have to be landed by the time you graduate from college. We've talked about some of the pitfalls and wrong thinking along the way. What else do we need to touch on, either that you included in the book or otherwise, to help students really have a healthy theology of vocation as they look toward their future? I'll say a couple of things. One is that I'm I'm increasingly convinced that vocation is at this time and in this place. Mm. So I'm called to be the president of not just generic university, but of this university at this point in its history. What does this university need from its president right now? My successor may approach this quite differently. What is needed by me here and now? Hmm. We name our reality and we don't live in an illusion about our reality. And Stan, there's no place for nostalgia. There's, there's no place for looking way back or for wishful thinking. I wish my circumstances were not like this. Hmm. Yeah, but they are. So there you are. So vocation is always at this time and in this place. Again, an incarnational theology. Yeah. We so often want to divorce the time and place we're in from kind of become these questions. Well, and where it's where it's very live right now, I think uh, we live in a post-Christian secular age. So we can bemoan or we can just say, this is our new reality. Mm -hmm. And then to say, what does it mean to be the church at this time and in this place? Mm -hmm. We may wish it was different. That's not that's not helpful. Right. And in actual fact, we get nostalgia to the time when the church was the dominant presence in our society. 
And I'm not convinced that it was necessarily the best thing for the church. Right. You look at China and other persecuted churches, and there's good data to that point. Yeah. And then to say, so what, what is going to keep us from doing what we are called to do? And I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that the greatest threat, I mentioned it earlier as self-knowledge, but as a last word, I think the greatest threat to our capacity to fulfill our vocations is fear. And that's the title of the book. Will we have the courage to do what we are being called to do? Hmm. And I, I struggle a bit with the phenomenon of what you could almost speak of as the pathological level of fear in the typical undergraduate, the level of anxiety, fretfulness, and worry that permeates an undergraduate uh, university is really quite staggering. So we hire faculty that I say lower the anxiety level in this place and uh, the level of mental health challenges around anxiety disorders that is so high for both women and men, but especially women. But how do we address matters of fear and anxiety? Because you're not going to be able to discern God's call in your life, except from a posture of peace, a, a posture of a deep, resilient joy, not fear. Fear will keep us from doing what we are called to do. The fear of failure, the fear of what will people say, the fear of, well, I can keep going. You get my, you get my drift. And I'm so oh, grateful yeah. that at a pivotal point in my life, a friend said to me, Gordon, what are you afraid of? And I said to him, what do you mean? What, a, what kind of a question is that? He says, I'm serious. What are you afraid of? And my wife, when I told her about that, she says, that's exactly the question you should be asking because it's your fear that's keeping you from saying yes. So how can we collectively in community, whether it's in our public worship on Sunday morning or whether it's in our common life and our work, how can we be communities where the anxiety level is coming down and not going up? And thus concerned with politicians and with religious leaders that fuel our fears. This is really not helpful. What we need is both politicians and uh, religious leaders who know how to lower the anxiety level because that's crucial to our capacity to discern vocation, mm -hmm. to be able to name our reality without fear, without anxiety, and then discern. This is how we're being called to respond to that reality mm -hmm. at this time and in this place. And this notion of fear ties into so many other themes you've touched on. You know, there is this assumption that is out there that once you finish high school, you've got to go to college. Once you start college, you've got to finish college. Once you finish college, you've got to get the top job in your field. All of those are wrong assumptions. Students might decide, I'm not called to go to college. And that's mm. great, right? Mm. Or they might get into college and, and say, I'm not called to finish. This is good. I got some, some, some background knowledge and some things, but I'm called to go do something else. And that's great, right? Or they come out of college, they decide, yeah, I've trained for law, but I really am, am, am really interested in history to go back to that example. That's great. So I think part of the help we can bring as a community is to foster this notion of, look, God's got this. You don't have to follow the prescribed trajectory. And if you're at one of those crossroads, it's okay to not go the path everyone seems to assume you should take. And don't go to college stop and don't finish and go to something else or go into some other career. That's okay. And I think it's the fear though, that's the core. But there's where a good friend could say it's fear or you haven't really thought this through mm. or you're, rea you're reacting to something. Um, as long as it's well thought through and you're accountable for your life and your work, for sure. Mm. Um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Gordon, this has been fabulous. As we wrap up, are there, besides the Courage and Calling book, which I encourage everyone to get and read. Are there other 
resources, books, websites, podcasts, things you know that talk about these issues in ways you think are helpful you might want to recommend? Well, I've published a couple of books. Um, Consider Your Calling, and it's really written for undergraduates. Okay. So it's just, it's just a it's just a 60, 70-page uh, book, not a booklet, but bigger than a booklet. And then I published my book six months ago entitled Your Calling Here and Now, mm. in which I kind of build on earlier thinking and Let's face it. I'm 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 quite sure in that book I'm writing to people in midlife. Uh, maybe it's you know uh, people who have been thinking about these issues for a while. Let's keep the conversation going. Sure. So that came out in June. You're calling here and now, making sense of vocation. Um, when I teach and lecture on this topic, I use as a text "Awakening Vocation" by a Catholic author, John Hagenberg, and I find that to be, frankly, I'm I'm glad you think highly of my book. That's very kind of you. But I think the best thing out there is his book, Awakening Vocation. Mm. Um, and it is fun at this stage in the life of the church that Catholics and evangelicals can be thinking about these topics together and learning from one another. Yep. I find that deeply gratifying. Yep. Well, thank you again. This has been such an enlightening conversation for me. Every time I read or interact with you, I, I learn something. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your service to the kingdom and your writing and leading and all the other ways God has and is using you. Thank you very much, Stan. Bless you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at Facebook.com dot com slash college faith and pass the show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond. <laughs>